We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. This is Ben Bueller Garcia. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, broadcasting from the Four Patriots studios. At Four Patriots, they help your family achieve freedom and self-reliance with high-quality outdoors and survival products. Visit fourpatriots.com and use the special code WARRIOR for a 10% discount on your first order. The mission of the Air Force Office of Special Investigation is to identify, exploit, and neutralize criminal intelligence and terrorist threats in multiple domains to the Air Force, Department of Defense, and the U.S. government. Threat detection, criminal investigations, economic crime investigations, cybercrime, and they also perform other specialized services. Founded on August 1, 1948, at the suggestion of Congress, OSI is patterned after the FBI. They currently have more than 2,000 military and civilian agents and more than 1,000 professional and military support personnel. They operate more than 290 field units worldwide. 16 OSI agents have been killed in the performance of their duties. Today we're going to talk with a special agent whose duties took him all over the world, from Panama to Kuwait, and probably lots of other places he can't talk about. Due to the nature of his work, we won't be using his real name. Of course, the opinions shared today do not represent the position of the United States Air Force or Space Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Mr. John Smith. Thank you very much. So, I saw from the website, John, that OSI is the second most requested career field of choice in the Air Force. I'm guessing pilot is number one. Why did you choose to go the OSI route? Actually, that's kind of interesting in the fact that I had originally started out with air rescue and recovery, and that was in support of the Titan missiles at davis Mountain. Once those missiles went away, I didn't kind of sort of didn't have a job, and I had established a relationship with one of the OSI agents there who suggested that I would do that. Gave me a hard time about the fact that, well, you're a first-termer, so we never, ever take first-term airmen. I applied because of linguistic capabilities and other things that was able to actually get in, and I ensured that that, uh, the agent that told me I'd never get in was present when I when I reenlisted as an OSI agent. Oh, okay, outstanding. It's sort of backwards, sort of kind of like the way I got into radio. Now, what what kind of specialized training do OSI agents receive? Do you, I mean, do you get the normal combat arms? Do they teach you to jump out of planes, or is there something else that OSI agents get that your normal airmen would not get? Simply the the addition that OSI does is it teaches you to be an investigator. That's one of the reasons why they don't want first-termers, is because they want you to have been established as, uh, you know, a medic or a pilot or something else just in case they need to put someone in in an undercover operation into a hospital or into a maintenance unit or you have an OSI agent that was an airman in that career field first. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, in your case, they, they eliminated that, that discipline. You, uh, They might as well have taken you. Well, sort of. I mean, uh, they, I, the, other, the other option was to go to work as a medic in the hospital, which I wasn't really anywhere near as excited trying to take that position as working with OSI. 
Now, so you, do you spend, do all the agents spend a little bit of time at, because, again, you're operating at a federal agency level. I mean, you're on par with FBI and DEA and ATF and some of those other folks. Do they send you off to Quantico as well? Um, no, actually, I went I went to Bowling Air Force Base, and now our headquarters is at Andrews Air Force Base. And our academy is there as well, except I think it was about 10 years ago, they just blended it in, and now all OSI agents go to FUTSI, which is the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center uh, in Virginia. Okay, so I'm I'm confusing that with Quantico. They're next door. Is <laughs> <laughs> the the Fletzi and Quantico happen to share the same value, but they're not the same uh, entities. Now, John, you mentioned that they don't like first term airmen because they want you to have at least some working knowledge of some place they might have to go undercover. Over the course of their careers, do OSI agents develop a a specialty? I mean, do they become okay this? This man or this woman is really a really good criminal investigator. Let's keep them in, in cases like that versus counterintelligence. Or is it just you never know what you're going to see that morning when you wake up? Yeah, yes and no, all the above. Um, the Going back to the training, your basic academy or your basic course in OSI simply teaches you how, how to be an investigator. Subsequent to that, there are numerous other specialized training for instance, I underwent a training on protective service operations where you just make sure that a very important person doesn't get injured, hurt, et cetera. I also went through a uh, fraud investigations course where the specialty on that, now there's a dozen different fraud investigation courses. That, that particular one was on contract fraud where you would go in and review how the contract was written and see if by any chance, and you know, what was the contractor doing what they're supposed to do according to what's on paper, or were they building in extra costs? So, you know, a $1 million contract is now $1.3 million contract. So there are people that do specialize, and the ones that specialize are usually uh, drug investigations, counterintelligence, and fraud. So a couple of months ago, we had an author, a couple authors on. They were talking about the the birth of the P fifty one Mustang, maybe one of the most you know historic fighters of World War II. And in the book, they just talked about how that plane almost never made it to the European theater. And part of that story was there was a general somewhere who was doing some inside deals, and because the the P fifty one folks would not play ball with him, he was keeping them out of the factories, and eventually. They they found this guy, and, and I think he was allowed to quietly resign. But I find it really interesting that then OSI was established just a couple of years after the end of World War II, and maybe he had something to do with it. Can you, and I know there's lots of stuff you can't share today, but in these cases of fraud, is there usually, and I hate to say this, but is there usually someone on the military side who's also involved? It's not just the outside contractors all the time, right? Yes. I mean, the conspiracy, by definition, needs at least two people. You can't have you cannot have a conspiracy of one. So the fraud, by its definition, is always going to involve at least two uh, participants. Yeah, conspiracy one sounds like a Steven Seagal movie, but we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so I, I've heard, and I've had other OSI people on as well, John, but. As I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, you because you're in the military, you do hold rank, 
but in the course of your day-to-day job, you don't use your rank. You're, it, I don't know if that's the right term or not, but when an OSI agent walks in, they just, they've got a badge and that's all there is. We, we mask our rank. Um, I had a situation, not in Panama, but I had a situation where I was deployed and the colonel in charge of the base that I was assigned to uh, demanded to know my rank. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mandated to mask my rank. So this, this uh, colonel kind of got all flustered. Well, what the hell do I call you? And I said, did he call me Joe? <laughs> or, or special agent? Um, yeah. Now, was this, was this an Air Force colonel? He should have known better. He or she should have known better. It was an Air Force Reserve colonel. So I'm not sure they had much, for lack of a better word, experience with OSI. We, we spend 99% of our time with the active duty folks. We will run investigations on reserve situations, but there's other things involved because reservists are more civilian or civilian most of the time, and we have the, you know, posse comitatus act. So there's, there's a bunch of things involved, not the least of which is why we also have civilian OSI agents. So if you get into a situation where you need to be arresting civilians, we have a civilian agent to arrest you rather than a military agent. So, therefore, they don't have the defense of, oh, posse comitatus, you're military, you can't touch me, I'm civilian. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with former OSI agent John Smith. I use the air quotes. That's not his real name because of the nature of the work he did. One of the places he was involved was in Panama uh, just prior to Manuel Noriega and the invasion there. Fascinating story. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with John Smith. Uh, John is a former Office of Special Investigations, a special agent for the Air Force. Don't bother Googling him because of the nature of the work he's done. Uh, We're bringing him on anonymously, so John Smith seemed like a perfect name. Uh, John, one of the we talked earlier about one of the places you were deployed to practice your craft was Panama. And Manuel Noriega was the, basically the de facto ruler of Panama from about 83 to 89. As I understand it, the CIA initially used him as a as a source, kind of an uneasy alliance because some of the other things going on in Latin America at, at the time. But when it was discovered he's a drug kingpin, things turned pretty sour. Were you sent to Panama when that switch had already been flipped, or were you there before that? Um, no, I was there before all that. Well, it was I coming out of the OSI Academy. I went to Davis Monthan for about 10 months. And then because of the way things work, the assignment process occurred. I ended up getting, uh, being due for an overseas assignment. Because I spoke Spanish, they, it made sense to send me to Panama. So I was assigned to Panama in 84. And my four-year tour ended just as Noriega was being bundled up and flown out to uh, Georgia after the whole just Operation Just Cause. So, so you were there. What, what was your job then prior to things popping with Noriega? If, if you can share what kind of missions well, you were doing. Well, again, we were we were just worried. There's there's a lot of counterintelligence work involved. 
round the clock, 24 hours a day, because, you know, the spies and spy catchers are are chasing each other around um, all the time. Um, it's not something that is that is advertised, but that's one of the things that just is an ongoing um, conflict between the various powers and political entities and, and items that were there. So no, I was I was assigned to Panama and I was working counterintelligence work before the whole Noriega thing happened. So that was, but I mean one of one of the things that was kind of interesting is when you know we were tasked with collections before everyone decided, oh, this guy is not so good, and and it's the liability to have a drug lord on the on the payroll for American intelligence agencies. We were doing some various and sundry collections in that arena, going all the way south to Honduras and all the way up to Mexico. And all you have to do is look at a map to recognize the strategic importance of Panama. I mean, there's this little ditch called the Panama Canal there that is pretty much important, really very important to us and, and the rest of the world, particularly when it comes to commerce. But then did someone, did your job change when someone somewhere decided that it was time to get rid of Noriega? I wouldn't say it changed. I'd say it would be it became more concentrated. Instead of kind of shotgun broad areas, you know, we've, oh, we've got Russian ships transiting the canal. What kind of intelligence are they gathering at? It got concentrated on, okay, we've got this bad guy here, and the United States needs to deal with them. One of my favorite stories on that is that one of my sources was a little abuelita, a little grandmother, and she had... Chuggy's daughters, nieces, nephews, grandchildren in every one of the, I can't remember, it was like eight or ten different political parties that were there. So one of the interesting things was that I'd go out to Veracruz, which was a little, little village right on the Pacific there. She would, you know, she, she'd always know things, all kinds of things about all kinds of people and everything going on because she herself had her own a group of, for lack of a better word, a source network in which she was getting information from all the various different political parties and, and this here and that there, and these people were planning it. Um, I remember one time I was talking, I went out to, to chat with her, and she told me, my friend, don't go downtown today. I said, why are we, no, don't go into Panama today. Well, why, do, why don't I want to go into Panama? Oh, it's going to be very bad. There's going to be a, there's going to be a protest going on, and and we expect the, the police to retaliate, and so bullets will fly. Mm. And sure enough, it is not me. That she, she, her intelligence was really was quite good. Her intelligence was so good, in fact, that I was not the only one that she was talking to. And I find it kind of interesting that uh, there was me, a Marine counter intel guy, and an Army intelligence guy. And then we were, it seemed like we were confirming each other's Information and there was corroboration. It seemed like there was corroboration on that information. When lo and behold, we're all talking to the same little old lady. <laughs> Once we learned that, we decided that we would just go together instead of going separately. We would all go together and talk to her. So that way, well, it didn't appear that it was various sources. It was one source. And the benefits that we found on that is one of us asking the question would you know, trigger a question from someone else. For instance, 
where she lived, she was just off the end of the runway. That the, the little village was pretty much right off the end of the runway for Howard Air Force Base. And so my interest was, well, have you seen anyone with long guns running around in the jungle or this or that? You know, I'm interested in threats to airplanes going by. Well, the Marine guy was more interested in, okay, there's this little creek right here, but during rainy season, does this become a rushing river? And so you could tell there was differences in the type of intelligence that each one of us would gather because of the missions that our departments had. John, I, I may have watched too many spy movies, but when you're going out to visit this little grandmother in this village, are you carrying envelopes full of $100 bills, or can you say? Um, sort of. For the, the <laughs> talk about envelopes full of $100 bills, it reminds me, we would, we would recompense them. I mean, so that she would, you know, we would, we would, we have monies available for refunding. So if someone had expenses and coming to to meet with us, well, then we could reimburse them. Um, the one agency that, that literally pays for information was the State Department. And we had a situation one time where there was a Russian that hopped off a ship, presented himself to the front gate of Howard Air Force Base for the security police, of course brought him down to the OSI office. And so me being the counter-intel guy, he, I ended up talking to him. Luckily, there was a unit with the Army at Fort Kobe next door that was deployed. There was a Russian translator there. But during the little talk with this man, I realized that he started answering the question before it was translated. Uh-huh. So, we, I, you know, it was pretty obvious this guy knew how to speak English. So I challenged him on that, and I said, well, you understand what I'm saying. Why don't we just... You, you know who I am, I know who you are, let's just talk to each other. So then the facade fell, and then lo and behold, he uh, he was a person of interest. I called the chief of station, explained what I had. He shows up, gives me an envelope full of $100 bills, literally, and uh, we put this guy in the crew compartment because there's a passenger area on a C-5, but the crew compartment is separate from that. So that none of the other, you know, military civilian folks coming back to the United States out of Howard Air Force Base saw this guy. We took him up with the crew and put him in the crew compartment. Okay. And so once he got back to the United States, he had a telephone number to talk to the folks at State Department. Okay. Now, Mr. Smith, I tell you, we we've, we've got to take another break here. When I come back, we we'll want to talk more about uh, more about Panama and then maybe Desert Storm. Ladies and gentlemen, your host Ben Bueller Garcia will be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're broadcasting from Ford Patriot Studios at Ford Patriots, a champion freedom and self-reliance, and offer high-quality products to help your family achieve both. Learn more at fourpatriots.com. That's the number, fourpatriots.com. Use the discount code WARRIOR at checkout. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're speaking with John Smith, who's a former Office of Special Investigations agent for the United States Air Force. Uh, because of the nature of what he did and what he's sharing today, that's not his real name. John, you were talking about this Russian that uh, literally jumped off a boat and decided to surrender himself to the United States. There's Army translators next door. It turns out you didn't need them. I guess the question that begs for me, 
you're in Panama, you speak Spanish, which seems like a pretty good thing to know in Panama. But do agents have to be trained in, in the, that particular language before they're deployed to a certain country or not necessarily? I mean, were all the agents there in Panama with you Spanish speakers? Yes. Preferably when you go overseas, it is. It's not, it's not an absolute, but you would much rather have, I mean, because of the nature of the beast, you want people that can talk to Bill Bowles all around the beast. And so, I mean, there was a, I had, I had, a, I had a situation when we were deployed to Africa. The commander there didn't want me to go off the base. And it took me a while to explain to him that my job is outside the wire. So once it, once he convinced me of that, we found out that, lo and behold, there was a prostitute that was targeting uh, U.S. military members because some Navy guy had given her a sexually transmittable disease, and so she was going to take revenge on all the Americans by passing this around to all the other ones. So whenever an air crew would arrive at that forward base, uh, the very first thing I would do is run out there and present this picture to them and say, you know, this this is a person that's targeting Americans to get you sick. And lo and behold, when I was redeployed, or when that unit was redeployed, that commander talked to the OSI commander for the reason. He wanted to have John go with him. I got to tell you, so I, some of your work sounds like it's pretty exciting, but you tell that story, and some of it's just what? Well, I mean, what was the most depressing? I don't know if that's the right word. Case that you ever worked on, where you just because you're not always investigating people outside the organization. I mean, you might have an airman who's doing something bad at that local air force base domestically, and your group is the one that goes after them too, right? Well, yes, all all death investigations fall under the purview of OSI. And in that line of the one of the most one of the saddest investigations I ran was when I was at North Air Force Base. That base has always had multiple deployments because of what they do and what the mission of that base is. And John, let me interrupt just for our listeners' purposes, Nellis is an Air Force Base is in Las Vegas, Nevada. Right. Anyway, she was she was facing her third deployment in a year and apparently was on the phone to her mother uh, talking about this. Her mother heard the bang of the gun. Bold Enelis actually called her the, the airman's commander. She called us. Uh, we went down there because we were changing to coordinate with the local police. Um, she was living off base in the apartment, and we went down there, and lo and behold, she had committed suicide. Oh, boy. Depressing. In, in those cases, who has jurisdiction? In something like that, what it's called is it's called um, joint jurisdiction. And because of the geography, the Metro Police would have been lead, and OSI would have been second. And when the interviews occurred and the Metro guy had to be on the base, I would facilitate for him. And when the interviews occurred and they had to be down in, in the city of Las Vegas, then Metro would facilitate my interview. Okay. Let's go back to Panama, because I've always found that really fascinating, John. That That's the largest um, combat, I guess is the right word, since Vietnam, as far as the f number of forces we sent in there. 
And I also find it really interesting being a student of, of military history. The other distinguishing factor was we already had a Cho in Panama. You know, not everybody who participated in the invasion had to invade. I mean, we had a good number of troops and, and sailors and airmen and everybody there already. But coming back to your sources there, um, how, like the grandmother you talk about, when, when things are clearly making a shift and you're saying, okay, there's something hopping that's, that's going to happen here with, with Noriega, are other people then coming up and, and knocking on the front gate of the Air Force base and saying, hey, I'd like to chat with somebody about something or... Are you having to proactively go out there? And that sounds like a pretty dangerous business. Be all the above. There's always someone that has a piece of information that they want to give, sell to the Americans. Um, the The problem with that is that, you can't. again, you have to corroborate it. You can't simply go off of the word of one guy that coincidentally wants to get some sort of financial remuneration for you know, bringing that information to you. One of the one of the critical aspects of vetting any source is what is their motivation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got guys that you've got guys that are motivated by money. You've got guys that are motivated by political orientation. Um, a lot of people were motivated by revenge. You know, there was uh, when I was at the counterintelligence training back in Washington D.C. The instructor of the course said that if you looked at all the defectors that the United States has throughout history, they all worked pretty cheap. <laughs> they were given, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for the information that they gave away that, that and sometimes cost us lives. Was there, when, when it became, and my understanding is, just looking back and, and doing some research, uh, Mr. Smith, there was, it was pretty obvious to everybody in that theater that this was going to come down to, to shooting, exchanging bullets. And I don't know if Noriega was the last one to get that word, or he just felt he was 10 foot tall and bulletproof, or I've heard an interesting story about witchcraft. Does that have something to do with it? <laughs> well, as um, he was, he had his brujas that in, you know how in the United States the president has his cabinet, uh, Noriega has his bujas, which were witches. And literally? They, literally. Okay. He had five bujas that were his uh, council and directors. Okay. And it, um, but, um, it's kind of interesting in the fact that um, he, they, they cast the spell upon him and told him that he was invisible. And so he was, he he had no tradecraft at all, but he traveled around Panama. He just did it. And so he was being tracked for months before, you know, the, the, the shooting war started. And, of course, once he realized that the Delta Force guys were on his tail, he ran into the church and, of course, asked for asylum from the church which then became its own little story and complication of its own. But, yeah, he he honestly believed that he was invisible to the Americans because his witches had cast this spell upon him. I mean, I mean, I, I laugh. I, I know we need to do incorporate cultural differences, but that seems like a little stretch. Um, 
that that plus the fact that I mean he was he was probably one of the biggest narcissists the world has ever seen, mm-hmm. and it was all about him, right? I mean he was he was this kid, this poor kid that had grown up in Florio, um and had raised himself up through the through the ranks of of the Panama Defense Forces and through luck and through um, guile and through making certain people above him disappear, uh, he ended up being the head guy. Tell you what, Mr. Smith, when we come back, I want to finish up with Pamela, and then I want to go to another hot place, although in this case it's a hot, dry place, the Middle East. We'll talk about uh, Desert Storm when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Benjula Garcia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler Garcia. We're speaking with former United States Air Force OSI agent John Smith. That's the Office of Special Investigations. Uh, Mr. Smith, on the commercial break, we were kind of chatting off, off air there a little bit about uh, you wanted to clarify something about this Russian. He wasn't just uh, your average sailor swab in the decks of that uh, commercial freighter. Correct. That's one of the, one of the after the first clue was the fact that this guy spoke English uh-huh. and not every not just Joe Blow crew member on a Russian trawler would be would speak English so that was the first clue and after having um, after having kind of broken through that it was one of these situations where um, you know he looked at me and I looked at him and we kind of like okay we know we're both in the same business here uh-huh. <laughs> well that's which that was what caused me to or that's what motivated me to call the Kifa station at the embassy in Panama and of course they the state folks took over from that point. That's probably that's the fact that he wasn't purely just a crew member, probably he was he was probably somebody that was, you know, manning the communications inco gathering equipment or something in in the ship. And so that's why the State Department was interested in him. So the trawler wasn't really a trawler. Why, why do the Russians always choose trawlers? It was, well, it, it really was a trawler because you'd have to have a cover story. Okay. So you've got the crewman, you've got the fishermen, um, but the captain of the boat is probably, a, you know, some of his officers, and of course you always have, you always have the enforcer guy, which is some sort of a KGB, GRU guy on board just to keep everybody in line. Okay. So their their trawlers are in fact trawlers, but they have, you know, a little room inside of them and a whole bunch of extra antennas on on top of the boat. Yeah, I, I guess that would make sense because when you board the the trawler and they've got no absolutely no fish on board, you'd think they're either really bad fishermen or something squirrely is going on. Now, Mr. Smith, we yeah. uh, in the pre-interview, I want to kind of wrap up Panama here, but in the pre-interview, you did talk about sometimes in your line of work, it's really nice to know that the folks up higher up on the chain of command are actually reading your reports. 
And there was one. So as you're preparing for the actual invasion, um, there's one case that, you, and that, that actually took place on December 20th, 1989, when we first went in there. But you were talking about one case. It could have been disastrous if the higher ups, the people planning the invasion, had not paid attention to some of the intel you were saying, and particularly about what happens when the tide goes out uh, around Panama City. Right. Um, one one of the realities of of the isthmus there is the water close to shore is very very shallow. So when you have the tide goes out, it actually goes out about a quarter of a mile. And you end up with these big mud flats. Though those mud flats from you know ten thousand, twenty-five thousand feet as a paratrooper look like a wonderful place to land, but if you were to, if the paratroopers were to actually put themselves down on that, they'd sink up to their waist and then be stuck, and it would be easy fodder for the Panama Defense Forces to just cut down. We went all the way to the point where there was an army modeler that actually put together, if you do an internet search on it, you can find that there was an army modeler that actually did a model of the water, you know, where the water is and where the mud is, so that when when the various forces came in to do what they were going to do, um, they stayed out of that and didn't end up getting themselves stuck. Real quick, yes, no, maybe answer, Mr. Smith. Do you think that if we hadn't interceded that the Panamanian people would have eventually overthrown Noriega or would it just some one of his officers would have shot him and filled the role same day, different bad guy? I'm not sure. Yes, I think there would have been a change in the politics. Not sure would have come about through the military. Um, there was a there was a very well established um, anti Noriega sentiment and political movement, which was called La Rebellion Blanca or the White Rebellion, and there was plenty of demonstrations by the the participants of this, and of course the uh, Noriega's defense forces response to that was always to you know, go beat them with the stick or shoot them. So there was, there was a growing opposition to Noriega um, before, or I guess in parallel with um, the United States saying we're not so sure we want a, a, a drug lord is on the on the payroll. Fair enough. Let, let's, uh, John. We've only got about five minutes left. Let's, if you don't mind, let's go from the sticky hot jungles of Panama to the dry hot deserts of, of Kuwait. You were uh, deployed to Kuwait for Operation Desert Storm. Now, as I understand it, you, in addition to speaking Spanish, you also spoke Arabic? Well, that that was, I had been, I had been assigned to go to DLI for Arabic. DLI, so Defense had, Language Institute? Right. Okay. Um, in, Mon- in Monterey. And so I had I had enough. I had enough Arabic to make myself understood. Um, couldn't, by no stretch of the imagination, would I be considered um, fluent. I just knew enough to, um, to 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 make myself understood. And more more often than not, um, the, the Kuwaiti officials, at least all the officer ranks, 
false spoke English. Because yep. many of them had been sent to either um, the UK or the United States for their school. And what was your role to be dur at, during that action? Well, again, we were doing uh, counterintelligence and anti-terrorism. Okay. Um, there was lots of folks, uh, lots of folks in that part of the world that, for um, idealistic or political reasons, wanted to do harm to the Americans. So we would, as, as all again, one of the one of the major requirements or one of the major task things that we had was to develop source networks around the bases and of course particularly in a, in a deployed environment um, we don't necessarily have hardened bases everybody's living in tents okay and it seems to me it'd be more difficult at least in Panama we're talking not that much of a different culture but in the Middle East we're talking almost night and day right um that's that's true. There, one of the one of the first lessons that I learned is the in the Middle East there's a concept of honor, which is parallel and equivalent to the ancient Japanese code of honor, mm -hmm. um, where you don't. It was there it was called face, and what you did is you didn't lose face or you gained face by. Um, who you knew and and what connections you had and and um, it was it was one of those situations where if the you know if the if the patrol cop wanted was looking for uh, a bribe out of you you simply mentioned to him that well my friend your captain um, and then all of a sudden that went away because what you're saying in 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 the parlance in the code you're saying I've already bribed people above your head so don't mess with me. Fair enough. I, that sounds reasonable to me. You, um, that that was an interesting. Well, let's let's just say you were part of two wins um, when we talk about American conflicts. Um, so that had to feel pretty good about you know lending your skills and and uh, being being part of that success. We've only got about a minute left, Mister Smith. Is there? I mean, what else do you want to leave our listeners with? I know, so I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And looking back, I regret never having joined the military. I certainly could have used the discipline. But I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I wore glasses. Recruiter said, no, not going to happen. But I was also a criminal justice major. Do you think OSI would have been an interesting path for someone like me as well? And, I mean, what would you say to other young people out there that are thinking about a career? Um, the short version is keep your options open. And so and so yes, I mean there are there are times when the you know everybody talks about the pilot, but if there wasn't a maintainer, if there wasn't a fueler, if there wasn't an armament guy, um, if there wasn't a sheet metal dude that put you know patched a hole in your wing, um, you couldn't be that fancy Dan high powered pilot if none of those other support roles were there. Sure, or a cook. Oh, good. Keep the fat pilots fed. Okay, well, great. Mr. Smith, we appreciate you sharing your stories and spending your time with us here on American Warrior Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Please share these messages. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, as always, all policies and procedures remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.